Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. And in today's programme, why woodpeckers don't get brain damage, rocket fuel, but not as we know it, and definitely more sustainable. Plus, these data are certainly worrying that there are effects in the lower airway which will make individuals more vulnerable to bacterial and possibly viral infections. We're looking at the rising trend in vaping. Much safer than smoking, say some, but a hidden threat in the long term, argue others. So what does the science say? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Across the globe, over 12 billion doses of coronavirus vaccine have now been administered. And while potential side effects of a sore arm, fever and fatigue were widely publicised, one impact not originally on the list began to crop up repeatedly. Women reported short-term changes to their periods. But were these women who would have experienced this by chance anyway, and it coincided with them getting the vaccine, or was there really a link? To find out, researchers have been poring over thousands of survey responses to better understand how vaccines might impact on periods. Julia Ravi spoke to the two Catherines behind the study. I am Catherine Lee. And I'm Catherine Clancy. When did these reports start to come out about changes to people's menstruation? When did you start to notice them? I started to notice it after I got vaccinated in January of 2021. As someone who already researched periods, I was attuned to the fact that periods respond to tons of things, including an immune response, like the vaccine kicks off in your body. And so I personally experienced this and reached out to Kate to just ask if she'd heard anything similar from anyone else. It's frankly because Katie noticed it to begin with that when I finally got my vaccine a few weeks later and then my period another week and a half after that, I was having the heaviest period of my life. I asked Twitter because, of course, that's what one does if anyone else has had the same experience. And the response was overwhelming. Why was it hard initially to see if the vaccine itself was having these impacts? And what were some of the initial responses from doctors in the medical community to these claims? The tweet went viral and our survey was very popular. So a lot of journalists wrote stories about the work that we were trying to do to capture these experiences. And almost every single article, with only a few exceptions, had a quote by an MD that either said there's no biological mechanism to explain this, or these are ladies just experiencing pandemic stress and stress affects the menstrual cycle too. Doctors and medical workers are going through a lot right now. And I know they just want to see people vaccinated. We all do. But the step to getting people comfortable with medical treatments, especially ones that have emergency authorizations, is to listen to them, right? And to make sure they feel heard and to have done the due diligence during the trials to make sure that we're understanding how different bodies react to the vaccine. And these trials didn't ask any questions about menstruation at all. Yeah. And if it wasn't reported on in the trials, I'm guessing that 
with your mission to try and understand a bit more about if there was a link between the vaccine and changes to menstrual cycles, you were starting with a bit of a blank slate then in terms of you have all these individual stories, but how did you go about collating them together to understand if there was a real link there? We designed our survey to ask about people's experiences with the period after their vaccine in relation to their period that they would normally expect or their lack of period for those who normally don't menstruate. And then we asked them after dose one and after dose two, we just asked about those two periods after each of those vaccines. It was the texture and content of their periods that was worrying for a lot of people. So it was heavier or it was unexpected. We heard from a lot of folks who are trans or non-binary who suppressed their menstrual cycles in order to confirm their gender. And we did hear from a number of folks who experienced breakthrough bleeding who had gender dysphoria as a result. So I think being aware that this is a possibility is important, especially for those groups, because making sure they have supplies on hand, making sure they are mentally and emotionally prepared as best as they can in case it happens is really important. And did you find any particular relationship? So say for individuals who have certain conditions, were they more likely to experience these changes following having the vaccine to their periods? So there are a couple of things we noticed that, again, if like anyone in the vaccine trials knew anything about the uterus, they might have kind of noticed and and predicted this, but there were a couple of major trends that we saw. So among menstruating people, we saw that if they were a little older, if they had been pregnant before or had children, or if they had reproductive conditions that are hyperproliferative. So those are things like endometriosis, fibroids, people with those types of reproductive backgrounds were more likely to say that they had a heavier period. Among the postmenopausal folks, they were more likely to be younger, as you might expect, because that probably means that their uterus is a little less quiescent or less old, so that uterus is maybe a little more likely to respond to the treatment. The uterus being the immune organ, it is, and the way that immune function is actually very tied up in blood, because blood is going to be carrying all sorts of the important things we need. It's got repair processes, it's got healing processes, it's got bleeding and clotting that it does. And that's all a natural thing that the uterus does regularly. And so you can imagine if you activate the immune system in some way, then that whole bleeding and clotting and inflaming and healing system is going to potentially be impacted by that. Catherine Lee from Tulane University and Catherine Clancy from the University of Illinois, they were discussing their work that's just come out in Science Advances. We often talk, metaphorically at least, about banging our heads against the wall. Luckily for most of us, talking is as far as it goes. But for some animals, really banging your head against something hard many times a day is a fact of life. So why don't woodpeckers that are masters at this and do it to attract mates and also open up holes in trees to find insects to eat get headaches and brain damage? The popular theory for decades was that these birds have spongy tissues at the bases of their beaks and that soaks up the shockwaves of the beak striking against the tree and that avoids transmitting the force to the brain. Surprisingly, it was such an attractive theory that everyone embraced it but no one actually thought to test it. And that is where Sam van Vossenberg comes in. Scientists have hypothesized that woodpeckers have a built-in shock absorber in their head to prevent themselves from getting headaches or injuries in their brain. But this hypothesis has never been tested so far, so that's what we wanted to do. What sorts of forces, when 
a woodpecker is striking a tree, will its tissues, including its brain, encounter then? When the beak impacts the tree, you have a strong shock. So the brain will suddenly come to a stop and the tissues will be pushed against each other. Or at the back of the head, they will also be pulled away from the, the brain case. If the shock is too high, you will get a concussion. We see this in, in human athletes, don't we, and, and people on the sports field when, when they have a sudden deceleration injury of their head. So it seems logical to assume that an animal that is repeatedly banging its head against a tree probably is going to encounter some of the same problems. Absolutely, yes. If, if you watch woodpeckers smashing their head against trees, it's a very logical idea to to think that they have a benefit from having something that cushions this blow. It's definitely a problem for football players or boxers or any uh, kind of people that, that experience these uh, strong shocks to their head. So how did you address this then? Well, we went out to uh, zoos where they have woodpeckers and there are not too many in Europe. Uh, and we took our high-speed uh, cameras so we could film up to 4,000 frames per second. And then we played these videos back frame by frame and tracked different points on the head of the woodpeckers like we would do with crash test dummies. So comparing the different parts on the head and how they, they experience the shock. How did you get them to hammer on demand? Because other people who've studied woodpeckers, because there was a paper a few years ago where researchers used an old-fashioned typewriter and tapped out a few words, and the woodpeckers would respond by tapping themselves. Did, did you just wait for them to tap, or did, did you stimulate the tapping in some way? No, we just waited for them to tap, and this was not such a big problem. These birds really like to hit their hat uh, against the wood. <laughs> so you get these pictures, you analyse frame by frame. What are you comparing with what? So you're just seeing the beak hit the tree. And then what do you measure? So if there would be any cushioning going on between the beak and the brain case, we would see a difference in the movement profiles of the beak and the brain case. So we compared the deceleration values we got out of, of our data set. And well, the result was that there was no difference between the beak and the brain case. So there was no evidence that there's any shock absorption going on. So it's clear that these woodpeckers are not going for this option to absorb the shock. You're saying if they did have some kind of spongy tissue that was there to soak up, like a shock absorber, some of that impact so it wasn't transmitted to the brain, which is what other people have speculated, that yeah. you would see the beak changing its position relative to these other structures in your pictures and you just don't see that, so you're ruling that out. Yeah, exactly. There's hardly any uh, movement between the beak and uh, the brain case. What do we infer is happening to the brain then under those circumstances? Well, the brain certainly experiences shock at this moment, but we calculated that it is not strong enough for birds to get a concussion because birds are just a lot smaller than humans and they just can't withstand higher shocks. It's a law in, in, in biomechanics that smaller animals can withstand higher shocks. The birds still have some safety margin before they would get uh, any damage to their brain. Has anyone gone inside the head of, of 
animals like woodpeckers after they've been pecking to see if there there are evidences of brain changes and, and whether this is just an unfortunate cost of this behavioural aspect. Has anyone done that? There has been one study. They found some proteins that are involved in, in damage repair. They call these the tau proteins. And we also see them in humans after they, they get uh, concussions and things like that. So there is some evidence that there's damage going on. It is an issue for, for these uh, woodpeckers to try to minimize their, uh, their damage. Sam van Vossenberg, he's at the University of Antwerp, and that study is just out in current biology. At the forefront of genetic engineering is the process we call CRISPR. It's a method of gene editing with the potential to revolutionise the treatment of genetic disorders and speed up the process of genetic engineering. It was on this basis that it won the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. But, as he explains to Will Tingle, University of Tel Aviv gene therapist Adi Basel has found that using the system can sometimes destabilise chromosomes and introduce new genetic problems. So CRISPR originally is a natural system. It's been here for billions of years. It serves bacteria in order to protect themselves against the viruses that attack them. However, only recently, some 10 years ago, two brilliant researchers have uh, found a way to use CRISPR also as a technology. And as such, it has become very popular in many fields of science and medicine. CRISPR allows us to manipulate the genome in a site-specific way. It allows us to cleave the genome where we want to. And following that cleavage, sometimes we can disrupt genes, so uh, make sure that we don't want to be active will stop being active. In other cases, when genes are mutated and we would like to repair them, we can cleave next to the problem and have the cellular repair systems correct the mutation into the desired uh, sequence. In yet other cases, we use CRISPR in order to make a point of integration. So after cleavage, we can insert large genes coding for whatever we want. For example, we can provide immune cells with genes that code for weapons against the cancer. This is one very popular uh, use of the technology these days. So it's really diverse. It's being used in organisms going from wheat to mice to uh, humans. That sounds like a fantastic advancement in medical treatment, but what potential risks have you managed to identify with this process? Other groups have previously shown different risks of this system. So it was known that it's not a magic bullet that is uh, foolproof. We knew it also had problems. However, we now have found a new and alarming type of chromosomal aberration, a big problem caused by the CRISPR cleavage that so far uh, the scientific community was unaware of. So, so far, people thought that after CRISPR cleavage, the cellular repair systems uh, ligate the chromosome back together, either in an error-free way. What we now find is that too often... After CRISPR cleavage, the repair systems fail altogether and the genome is not ligated together at all. But instead, large chromosomal arms or even entire chromosomes 
get lost in the subsequent cell division. And that's dangerous. So this situation called aneuploidy, where instead of having two copies of each chromosome, as is the natural situation, one is missing a copy, this type of chromosomal instability is associated with cancer. <laughs> that sounds very uh, threatening in a way. Does this mean that we should perhaps stop or at least halt our use of CRISPR? No, so CRISPR has a huge potential. And as I said, it can be used to treat many medical conditions, and I'm sure that it will. But all of us, researchers and clinicians using this technology, must be aware of the risks, monitor these risks, or try to find out to what extent does our particular use is associated with this risk, and also find ways to mitigate the risk. For example, perhaps if we engineer the cells outside of the body and then inject the engineered cells to the body, we can have a stage at which we assess the cells before injecting them, finding those that have the problem and sorting them out. Brilliant. What do you think is next for CRISPR? What are the future applications you can see of it being used for? It's both present and future, perhaps for the audience, it would sound futuristic, but in fact, it's going on now in clinical trials to treat many different types of cancer and genetic diseases uh, by disrupting genes that are harming, by inserting genes that are missing. For example, a child may be born missing a particular gene function, which can cause a very severe disease and early death if not treated. But now, perhaps, with the help of CRISPR technology, we will be able to insert the desired gene into a preferred location in the child's genome. And then the child can express the gene that was missing and be better. Not necessarily mean complete cure, but be much better than he or she would have been otherwise. So some way to go yet. We need to proceed with caution. Adi Basel there. He's at the University of Tel Aviv. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, how might vaping affect your health? But first, fuel prices might be astronomically high at the moment, but this week we're also focusing on fuel that can take us astronomically high. That is, of course, jet fuel. Similar to the petrol that we fill our cars with, jet fuel is often synthesised from non-sustainable sources that give it a hefty carbon footprint. But researchers at the Novo Nordic Foundation Centre for Biosustainability in Denmark have found a method to generate power pack propellants from plants. Julia Ravi spoke to Pablo Cruz Morales, who told her about a synthetic molecule called Sintin that was developed as an alternative rocket fuel in the 1960s and inspired the present work. Sintin is a synthetic fuel as a replacement for rocket fuels, which are typically kerosene. It was developed by the Soviet scientists in the Soviet Union and used successfully in the upper phases of the Soyuz rockets. The process involved the presence of certain chemicals that are explosive and toxic, and the process wasn't very, very efficient. But it's known that synthene is, is a good fuel. It provides higher energy and higher impulse for the rockets than the kerosene. To get a jet off the ground, I'm guessing you need a fuel that packs a lot of energy, but you're also constrained by the size of the fuel tank. And then there's a problem with if you build a bigger tank, you're carrying more weight. So how can we chemically pack a bigger punch when it comes to the components of jet fuel? 
The difference between gasolines and jet fuels, for example, is the content of carbon chains that are a circular molecule. So you can have eight-member, six-member carbon cycle, etc. The shortest is three carbons. And for making these rings so small, you need to bend the carbon-carbon bonds, and that requires more energy. When you burn it, you release more energy. In terms of the volume of fuel, if the components in it are bent into these circular carbon structures, you're essentially getting a similar volume of, say, like other fuel like petrol, where you don't have these things in. But because they have these bent structures in them, they, when burned, release a lot more energy. Yes, that's the idea. In simple words, is energy density. Higher energy density, it means that you can have more energy storing a smaller volume of the fuel. The process of making sintin, which was one of these types of molecules, sounded like it was quite nasty. So is there a way that we can make these higher energy structure molecules in a more sustainable way? Yes. The idea is to use biology. There are some organisms in the planet that are able to make extraordinary chemistry. So we're looking for potential molecules that look similar to synthin and that we can take the genes that direct the synthesis of these molecules, putting them into a bacteria that we can put in a flask, and then we will produce this. Instead of nasty chemicals, we just add sugars, and then we will produce these molecules. So you just feed the bacteria sugar, and because they have the right enzymes in them is that right the right enzymes in them they then produce these really quite complex structured molecules which are good for this type of fuel yes that is correct and you said in your process that you fed these bacteria sugar but could we use say waste products as the substrate for the bacteria in making this fuel and that would then make the process even better for the planet yes at this point in the in our research we are feeding sugars because this is a proof of concept level. But if, if we were uh, to make a sustainable fuel at large scale, the ideal scenario would be to feed substrates that are derived, for example, from lignocellulosic biomass, from agricultural waste, or maybe plastics that have been break down using some chemical process, for example, that you can convert into something that the bacteria can eat and then make into these biofuels. Any biofuel that is made with lignocellulosic biomass or plastic waste. This benefit of being sustainable because it's not taking carbon from petroleum, which is a non-renewable resource. So instead of that, we're taking carbon, for example, if we take lignocellulosic biomass, the carbon is trapped by the plants, and then we convert it into these products. Then if we burn the products, they will go back to the plant and the plant. So it's circular. Is this process scalable? It is possible. And the team in California is working on it, but it is an important challenge. I will add to that. Now that we know that we can make the chemistry, it makes sense to put an effort to increase a tighter yield because before we didn't know that it was even possible. So bio-waste sending us spacewards. Pablo Cruz Morales there on his work that's just come out in the journal Jewel. Now, talking of waste, every year about 31 million tonnes of tyres reach the ends of their lives. But hitherto, because tyres are a complex mix of materials, doing much with them other than dumping them, burning them or occasionally incorporating them into the material that makes new road surfaces has been extremely difficult. 
Now, though, the Norwegian company Wastefront have an alternative solution. They've got a way to roast the raw materials out of old tyres so it can be reused. This spares the environmental cost of sending them to landfill or the pollution associated with burning them. They've just had plans for a new plant approved in Sunderland that will be able to turn 20% of the UK's worn-out tyres into plastics or biofuels, as Harry Lewis heard from Wastefront CEO Viennie Vales. If you look at what's in a tyre, there are three main components. You have the rubber, then you have carbon black, which is a carbon powder, and then you have steel to maintain the structure of the tyre. You, you have very nice components. If you could manage to recover them, that would be much better than, than burning them. So what we do is we use a, a system that's called the pyrolysis, which is about heating the tire that we have first shredded in smaller pieces. So the rubber decomposes into first a, a gas that is later condensed and produced a liquid. Okay, This liquid can be sold as a biofuel or can be retransformed back into plastics, for example. The other part that is not decomposed is the carbon black. The carbon black is not changed by this pyrolysis. So this carbon black can be reutilized 100% into tires. The steel that is separated during the, the shredding part mainly can be recycled into steel. So the three components that um, the tires has are either upgraded into biofuels or biopetrochemical components or fully recycled as steel or as carbon black into tyres. And those dangerous chemicals, they're not being released? No, because they're they're not burned, they're not emitted. You heat it in the absence of oxygen. In the absence of oxygen, you do not produce CO2. You simply decompose the tyre. It sounds like a no-brainer, Viennie, but I'm assuming that there are high costs associated with this process. What's the drawback? It's uh, high cost, but mainly, yeah, it's a complex association of different uh, technologies, all of them being commercial, but you need to integrate them in a, in a clever manner. The construction uh, companies that you are hiring uh, need to understand this kind of new projects. So it's a lot of uh, putting everyone together. And those building contractors that you've spoken about, they're going to get some work soon, aren't they? Because you're opening something in Sunderland. What is important from from our viewpoint is to not only have a green solution, but also have a solution at scale that can move the needle and really solve the end-of-life type problem. As an example, our plant in in Sunderland, in the northeast of the UK, which will be our first uh, commercial plant, uh, is able to solve 20% of the end-of-life tire problem in the UK on its own. So I, I think that's uh, also a very important dimension of our projects. Some good news there. Viennie Vales, he was speaking to Harry Lewis. He's from Wastefront. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. 
perfect music for audio and video productions. It's The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. And this week, we're going to talk about this. Over to James Titko to kick things off. So, Chris has tasked me with finding some views given the vaping boom we've seen in recent years. I've brought a microphone to a pub to discuss the impact of vaping on some people's smoking habits. Right, Will, you got a vape in your hand there. Before you started vaping, did you smoke cigarettes regularly? Not regularly, but I would classify myself as a social smoker in that, especially on a night out, having after having a few drinks, I would definitely say having a few cigarettes was quite nice. But since being having recently purchased vapes somewhat regularly, I would say that it's much nicer than having a couple of cigarettes on a night out. How, would, how regularly have you been vaping? Past two months, a fair bit. Since then, I've maybe purchased four or five. Right. Um, so that would be the numbers on it. For me, time is, is maybe something that I might enjoy through the summer and then I wheel myself off it. Um, just won't buy any and that will kind of be it, I suppose. Then I spoke to Tommy. So Tommy, you were, you were a bit more of a smoker than Will before you started vaping. Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. And over the past six months, you've picked up vaping. I'd say over the past probably two months. Similar sort of level to Will? No, probably more, more. I would say, yeah. You can't really put figures on it because each, each, well, each vapes have a different amount in. And finally, Sam. Sam, you've smoked the odd Please. cigarette. Yeah. Are you at all tempted to take up vaping? Uh, not, no, not vaping, no. To summarise this less than scientific research into smoking habits... Those who are partial to smoking cigarettes have found vaping to be an enticing alternative. Sam, on the other hand, who had never really smoked cigarettes, was not interested in taking it up. I'm interested in what Will had to say especially. A self-proclaimed social smoker, vaping turned his nicotine consumption from a once-in-every-so-often kind of thing into more of a daily habit. Some of the worries surrounding the explosion in popularity in vaping over the past couple of years is that it might coax some younger people, those who aren't that interested in taking up smoking cigarettes, into picking up vapes, given the smaller but not as yet completely understood health implications. And that is what we're going to delve into now, what those health impacts might be. But first, what do the stats say about the scale of vaping, especially among younger people? Some are worried that younger people, including those who would otherwise potentially not smoke at all, are being seduced by vaping, judging it to be less risky than smoking. So are they? Well, possibly. Vaping rates in under-18s have nearly doubled in the last few years. Linda Bald is a public health specialist. She's at the University of Edinburgh, and she's been involved in a range of studies and consultations on the recent uptick in the uptake of vaping. In the UK, which has actually some of the highest levels of use in the world, we now have about 7% of adults, that's 3.6 million people, who are currently vaping, but that is still fewer than, for example, the number of smokers we have in the UK, which is still about 14% of the population, 6.9 million. And are those smoking figures overlapping with the vaping figures? So if someone says they're a smoker, are they saying they're a smoker if they're a vapor, Or have we got 6-7% vapors and 13-14-15% smokers? 30% of people who are vaping are also smoking. The vast majority of people who vape are actually ex-smokers. There's 2.4 million of those, so 65% of vapors are ex-smokers. And a tiny proportion, about 1%, who are vaping have never smoked. What is the age breakdown? Who's doing what by what age? If you look at 18-year-olds, about 40% of 18-year-olds have tried vaping. 
So it's quite common to have tried it. But if you look at young people overall, so let me just start with the proportion who have um, tried vaping at all. Um, and that has gone up over time. So it's not as big as adults, but about 15.8% of 11 to 17-year-olds have tried vaping. In terms of current vaping, as in they're doing it at the moment, it's about uh, 7% of 11 to 17-year-olds. And that's actually gone up recently. And that's a 2022 figure from 4% in 2020. So we've seen quite a big jump in youth vaping in the last year in the UK. Do we know what's driving that? And do we know what that is translating into? Is this translating into entrenched vapors? Is it translating into smokers? Do we know? Let's start with why we think we've seen a recent rise is to do with changes in the market and the availability of particular products, particularly disposable vapes. I think in the UK, although also in the US, these are quite common now. Disposables accounted for 7% of the market for young people in 2020, and it's now 52% in 2022. Is it translating into long-term vapors or long-term smokers? We don't actually know that yet, but most young people who vape are just doing it occasionally or they've tried so the level of regular use, as in at least weekly, is very low. Less than 5% of young people who are vaping are, are vaping regularly. And 92% of under-18s who've never smoked have also never vaped. So it's common, but it's not becoming a majority activity. So the question is, is vaping creating a generation of new smokers? Well, at the population level, we're continuing to see youth smoking rates decline at a very encouraging rate in many countries. So what we see in these studies where there's a relationship between smoking and vaping is more that they're the same kinds of young people who are trying these risky behaviours. Some people, when we talk about the health effects of vaping, tend to react with hostility because they regard vaping as a much safer alternative to smoking. But I suppose there are two aspects to that, aren't there? It may well be safer for people who used to smoke, but it may not be safer if someone takes up vaping who would never have smoked. So what does the what does the data suggest? Is this just supposition that it's safer? Do we have concrete evidence that vaping is good compared to smoking? It's pretty difficult to find something as harmful to the human body as cigarettes and combustible tobacco. Really very, very difficult. So if we start out with the relative risk question, I'll just give you two brief examples of studies, one in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2017 and the second one in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. And the first study took smokers who completely switched to vaping and had done that for a while, or those who were both smoking and vaping. And they compared, compared their nicotine exposure, which is similar. They compared their toxicant exposure and also some carcinogens. And they found that people who switched completely to vaping dramatically reduced their levels of exposure to toxicants and carcinogens. But those who were dual users, as in they were smoking and vaping, the reduction was very small. Secondly, in the cardiology study, which was looking at switching completely for a month for people who were regular smokers to vaping, they found that their vascular function in that short time period really improved. So I think relative risk, we can be relatively confident because smoking is so harmful that if people switch completely to vaping, they're going to be better off and they'll benefit their health. But we simply don't have enough evidence from human studies for several years, for example, amongst people who've never smoked and who vape. So there we rely on studies in cells and studies in animals, where some of the findings are actually quite alarming. But we just can't be confident that we should say to people it's going to be as harmful as smoking in the future because we simply don't know that yet. Linda Bald.
Now, one of the points she makes, of course, is about the availability and attractiveness of vaping products for younger people. So we went to talk to some of the people who are selling vaping paraphernalia about the business and to find out who are their clientele. Most of them would talk to us, but one, Andy, who owns an outlet called eSig Wizard, did. May 2015, we officially opened. We've been here through the boot. People of all ages, all walks of life, all nationalities, basically them that are smoking, that have now realised the easiest way to quit is, is to start vaping. Public Health England have, have, have already done the studies and, and, and made the announcement that vaping is 95% less harmful than smoking. No one is saying that vaping is necessarily good for you, but in comparison to smoking, definitely 95% less harmful. And he's absolutely right. A 2015 review authored by Anne McNeil and Peter Hodgek for Public Health England puts the best estimate at vapes being 95% less harmful than cigarettes. And as Linda Boulders pointed out, people do benefit if they switch. But the data are all short-term at the moment, and being 95% less harmful still doesn't mean there isn't a health effect at all. Indeed, as many point out, it took decades of following up smoking doctors before Richard Dole could say definitively that smoking causes cancer, among other things. Before that, though, some even believed cigarettes were good for you. So could we all be in a similar situation with vaping, whereby we just haven't got sufficient data yet to know where the true health harms are? Well, let's follow the path that the vape takes through the body and explore what evidence we have so far for how it might be affecting our health, particularly in comparison with cigarettes. Our first stop is the mouth. Now, a number of young people have reported on social media recently that after particularly intense periods of vape use, they've noticed a sore mouth and bleeding gums. One put this down to buying disposable vapes because being easier to use covertly, in her case even in the cinema, she found she was vaping much more frequently, far more in fact in nicotine terms, than had she smoked. Bleeding gums is a sign of gum disease and that can have effects all around the body. Ian Needleman is Professor of Dentistry at the Eastman Dental Institute in London. We know a lot about cigarette smoking. It increases the risk somewhere between about three and six times of developing gum disease. And the mechanisms that underpin this fall into three main categories. One is to change the bacteria in the mouth, known as the microbiome. The second thing is to increase how our body reacts to the bacteria, creating greater inflammation and therefore greater risk of damage to the mouth and gums. And the third thing is that smoking gets in the way of how we fight the bacteria. In other words, it impairs our immune response. So if all that happens with smoking, how does that compare to vaping? It's a great question, and we're in early days of understanding this. What we know so far is there are changes in the bacteria, in the microbiome in the mouth. And uh, a study that was published very recently looked at three groups, non-smokers, people who were only using uh, vapes, and people that were only smoking. And what was interesting was over a six-month period, the characteristics of the uh, vapors was very different from the non-smokers, but also different from the smokers. And what's important in thinking about risk is that the type of bacteria were those associated with problems such as gum disease. Do we know how these products, when you 
put them in your mouth, change the bacteria in that way? It's likely that vaping will change the environment like any kind of ecosystem by changes in acidity, pH, uh, by temperature. What we also know is that it's tending to favour an increase in inflammation, which can then lead to damage to the tissues. And it seems vaping might also make the cells around the mouth more able to be colonised by bacteria, so make it easier for the bacteria to get a foothold and therefore make the first stages of causing disease. Does this occur to a lesser extent with vaping than with smoking? Because one of the arguments is that, that you can use vaping as a step down from smoking and nothing's as bad as smoking. So is it, is it that you get the same sorts of changes as smoking but they're not as pronounced? Or have we got new changes that we can see that vaping may have independent risk for the health of your mouth and teeth that's not there if you smoke? The evidence so far is that uh, vaping is still much safer compared to smoking. Is it harmful compared to not smoking? Um, and the evidence is starting to look quite concerning that vaping will carry risks that aren't there if you're a non-smoker. One of the things that often surprises people is to learn that if you don't look after your teeth then often you're at higher risk of a whole raft of other diseases. Things like your heart disease risk goes up if you have gum disease. And people argue this is because of inflammation being a systemic thing all around the body, even though it may start in one place. So if you're arguing that vaping is a risk factor for more inflammation in the mouth, does that mean that indirectly you could be at risk of a whole raft of other conditions, including things like heart disease, downstream of that? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought it into a discussion of the sort of connection between the mouth and the rest of the body because for most of us, if you look around, most people's heads are and their mouths are connected to the rest of the body. So there's, there's, there's bound to be connection. And you know, one of the very specific links that has been demonstrated is in the control of blood pressure because it may be surprising to, to many people that one of the first steps in control of blood pressure is nitrate that we take in through things like leafy vegetables and the way that that nitrate is reduced into nitric acid which is a, a very important part of the pathway of maintaining blood pressure that is initiated in the mouth by the bacteria in the mouth so these changes that i've talked about through smoking into the oral microbiome have also demonstrated that the types of bacteria that would favour a better control of blood pressure, they will be overtaken by species which aren't involved in that pathway. So there's a very clear example of how a change in the bacteria in the mouth can affect health. And we know that a number of conditions, particularly severe gum disease, will have impacts, as you said, on heart health. Only last week, NICE has produced a new updated guidance on the management of type 2 diabetes. And for the first time, uh, one of the recommendations to manage type 2 diabetes is to treat gum disease. Because it's been again well demonstrated that if you treat gum disease and the inflammation associated with gum disease, you can improve people's control of their blood sugar. So things are very much interconnected. 
how the health of your mouth will have an effect on the, your, the rest of your body and the health in the rest of your body will affect your mouth too. Ian Needleman. This is The Naked Scientist, I'm Chris Smith, and this week we're looking at the rise of vaping and, while posing a lesser risk than smoking, the potential health hazards that it might inflict on users. Following the vapour trail through the body, our next stop is the lungs, where there's mounting evidence that the chemicals in vape smoke might make the cells lining our airways an easier target for infection, as Queen Mary University of London's Jonathan Grigg explains. So what we do is grow cells that line the airways, the lower airways, deep in the lungs, grow them in a laboratory and put uh, e-cigarette vapour onto them. And what we see is that those cells become stickier for bacteria that can cause really quite serious respiratory lung illnesses. Um, One of the commonest is called the pneumococcus. It actually causes quite serious pneumonia, actually uh, get across into the bloodstream. And we see more bugs of these bacteria sticking to the cells when they've been exposed to e-cigarette vapour. And one reason for that is that the e-cigarette vapour causes something called oxidative stress. In other words, it stresses the cells and the cells respond by making themselves stickier for these bugs uh, to, to infect them. Do you know if that stickiness actually has consequences though? Because being a bit stickier might not translate into a greater or lesser disease risk. I mean, does it? Well, that's, of course, the key question of whether this happens in real life. Certainly, what we call the receptor that the bugs use to stick onto is really very important um, in a, ra- a range of animal models. Um, if, that, if, you get the, if the animals have more of this receptor in their airways, then they get more severe infection. But we did follow it up by uh, asking vapors to do a vaping session, and uh, we brushed their, at least their, the cells from their nose, and we think that the responses on the nose are probably very similar to the lower airway. And we found that with a vaping session, yes, the particular receptor that the bugs use did get upregulated. There was more of it after a vaping session. So it certainly happens in real life. We're not absolutely sure whether that's going to be translated into more vulnerability to severe infection, but it's certainly worrying to us. Do you know how the vape is doing this to the cells? Is it just that oxidative stress reaction or are there specific chemicals in the vape that might be causing this to happen more? which would argue, well, if we don't use those chemicals or don't use those vapes, then we could reduce the risk. Human vapors use a range of uh, vaping implements, uh, first, second, third generation vaping, different flavors, and we, we saw the same sort of response. We did look at nicotine-containing and nicotine-free vape, the same, same um, if you like, uh, carrier, and we see the same effects whether nicotine is present or not. So it's not the nicotine itself that's causing it. We're probably certain that it's a generalizable phenomenon. And just bacteria? Or could the effect also extend to <laughs> fungi and possibly viruses? We haven't looked. One study which looked at the effect on a receptor that the SARS-CoV-2 virus uses to enter cells. That's called the ACE2 receptor. Certainly has been, in initial reports, shown to be upregulated by e-cigarette vapour, as well as cigarette smoke, of course. Now, if this is translating into a shift in clinical risk, given the uptake of vaping among younger people who are never normally smokers, are we seeing a link epidemiologically between vaping and possible more invasive chest infections with things like pneumonia? 
the answer is not yet. But of course, pneumonia is fortunately pretty rare in uh, healthy young adults. It's taken us a very long time to show that uh, active smoking was associated with uh, pneumonia invasive disease many, many years after the initial description of cancer. And it's confounded by the fact that people are using different types of uh, vape flavors, etc. So epidemiological studies really haven't been done and we'd have, we don't know if there's a signal um, or not. But I think we have to say that these data are certainly worrying that there are effects in the lower airway which will make individuals more vulnerable to bacterial and possibly viral infections. But we haven't seen that signal yet. Jonathan Grigg, so that's the lungs, but what about elsewhere in the body? The chemicals in vape smoke move into the bloodstream. That is, of course, how the nicotine that uses Crave gets in. But those other chemicals also make it into the nervous system and other organs, including the heart. So what effects do they exert there, if any? Laura Crotty-Alexander has been trying to answer that question at the University of California, San Diego, using laboratory mice. Cigarette smoke contains about 7,000 chemicals, and that use of cigarettes leads to damage across the body. Everywhere from your lips, where it first makes contact, all the way down to the GI tract and out to the skin and to the brain. And what we sought to find was whether e-cigarette aerosols could also impact all these different organs across the body. So we have this special setup where we take the mice and we put them in a little pie-shaped wedge container where they can move around. And then we use e-cigarettes that we have bought on regular websites, and we give them a puff of e-cigarette aerosol and then regular air, and we have them breathe that in for 30 minutes three times a day. And is the mouse dose equivalent to what a human consuming these products would get? Or are the mice getting a much bigger impact and a bigger dose? Because obviously a human breath would be massive for a mouse. Right. No, very good question. And we do try our best to design these mouse models to mimic human use which is why we expose the mice multiple times a day, because a lot of humans use e-cigarettes throughout the day. And when we take one puff that's more human-sized, we actually put it into a large chamber where it diffuses, so 16 mice are breathing in that aerosol. And how do you then marry up what that intake is doing in different parts of the body? We actually harvest the mice And then we take all the different body parts and we look at them using special tools that look at gene expression or levels of protein. And we actually even look at organ function. And so we use these different measures to try and determine whether inhaling these e-cigarette aerosols over months leads to changes in these organs. And what crops up when you do this? Do you see systemic effects? Yes. So I was very surprised that we found profound changes in the brain in particular of these mice that inhaled jewel mint and jewel mango, which are two flavors that were very popular at the time we started this study. And both of those aerosols led to inflammation in the brain, which is shocking because the brain is a protected compartment. So it was very worrisome that inhaling the the e-cigarette aerosols for just a month led to very impressive levels of inflammation 
and a part of the brain that controls mood and behavior and memory. Are you saying that it's specifically the flavors that are doing that? So this is a, an effect beyond the addictive qualities of the nicotine and so on? In the brain, the fact that we saw um, similar changes in both flavors indicated more that it was the nicotine and the other substances at the core of these e-liquids that were driving the changes. But for example, in the heart, we found that the mint flavor really changed and drove inflammation, whereas the mango flavor did not. And so that comparison helped us to understand that maybe the heart effects may be particularly driven by the mint flavor and not the nicotine and other components. We'll come on in a second to what the impact of that might be. But just considering for a minute the fact you've got this effect, how does it compare in scale with if the mice were just, if mice could, smoking normal cigarettes? If I were to look back at the historic data, I would say that the neurologic effects are of a scale that appears to be either equal to or greater than what is seen in conventional tobacco, and that the effects are different. We believe that chronic inflammation might be linked to at least the progression, if not in some cases the cause of certain neurodegenerative conditions, and probably also degeneration in other organs, isn't it? So do you think then that, that this is indicative of the fact that people doing this could be speeding up the ageing process of their brain? They're effectively bringing forward the age at which that they may well succumb to degenerative conditions of the nervous system. I absolutely agree that that is a concern And in addition, the changes in these parts of the brain suggest that people who are using e-cigarettes may have more anxiety and depression and might have sort of permanent changes to their behavior patterns. Worrying that exposure to vape smoke can cause inflammatory changes all around the body, isn't it? Laura Crotty-Alexander there. So what have we learned? Well, we've heard this week that vaping is increasing in popularity and that rates of smoking overall, though, are falling, with the majority of vapors being former smokers who are using vapes either to quit or as a healthier alternative to cigarettes. But we've also heard that the number of under-18s taking up vaping has increased significantly in the last couple of years, and for some of those individuals who wouldn't previously have smoked, vaping is proving to be an irresistible draw. But for everyone, based on what our contributors have told us, there's almost certainly health impacts from vaping, which might range from a risk of gum disease and tooth loss in the short term to even neurodegenerative diseases and dementia longer term. As they say, there is no such thing as a free lunch, and there's usually also no smoke without fire. That's it for this week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. But before we go, do please, if you enjoy these programmes that we produce for you, consider supporting us with a donation. We'd especially welcome small regular contributions, which can help us to cover our operating costs, which are regrettably rising. We've made it very easy and secure to make a donation at nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. And thank you very much indeed if you already are helping us. We really appreciate it. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.